So we're in a series of messages on marriage. In the month of April, we really laid a theological foundation for marriage as we're going to God's word and saying, God, we want to submit our understanding of marriage to what your word says. Not have marriage based on what we've observed in our families of origin. Uh, not have an idea of marriage depicted by our culture, but going to God's word and saying, God, what do you say marriage is all about? What's the reason for it? Where are we to go? So we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, God's good plan of creation as he made men and women in his image, in his likeness, called to carry out his good work of creation, his mission that he's given us to have dominion over all creation, to represent the king and all of his glory to all of creation. And in that perfect idyllic state there in Genesis 1 and 2, prior to sin, Man and woman together in complete intimacy, complete transparency, hiding nothing, walking in communion with God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, hearing his voice, and then Genesis 3 happens, and that's where sin comes in, and where uh, Adam and Eve both see that fruit, they say, man, that looks good. Let's cut God out of the equation. Let's have knowledge of good and evil directly for ourselves. Let's not live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's taste this fruit and we will be like God. And they believe the lie. And there's lust involved in that. As they look at that fruit, it looks tasty. There's pride that thinks I know better than God. And there's really a demonstration of a lack of faith in what God has said and what God has declared. But So that's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus comes, as we saw in the book of Ephesians, especially the beginning of chapter 5, the end of chapter 4, seeing how Jesus comes and he makes it possible for us to experience a new life, to get back on board with God's kingdom mission, and in our marriages, to go from a place of shame and hiding and blame-shifting to now because of Jesus' work, being able to re-enter that place of intimacy, transparency, to follow after the model of Christ in living to glorify God and working that out in our relationships with one another. And then last week we really saw the mission of marriage spelled out at the end of Ephesians 5, really clear instructions to husbands and wives, conversations about what it is to lead and follow in ways that honor God not in ways where you lord it over others or with, where you withhold uh, servanthood to one another, but really where we put one another first and we submit to one another. So today we're going to uh, dig a little bit deeper into the nitty and gritty of married life. And one of the questions I want to begin with as we turn to Romans 8 is when you look in the mirror, who do you see? Because there's a lot of versions of who you are. And there's a lot of true statements if someone were to say, who are you? You know, you could honestly say, uh, well, I'm that person right now today. Just a raw, brutally honest, realistic self-assessment. Warts, flaws, sins, imperfections, shortcomings, failures. And on your lowest days, that might be the you that you see. You may even get a distorted view of that even further to the left where you go, you know, I'm actually worse than anyone else around me would see. I, I have a low self-esteem. I have a low sense of self-worth. And you could live in that place of condemnation. Hopefully there's other days where you would look at that reflection looking back at you and you would see some hope. And you would see not just the person you are today, but that person you're aspiring to be. That person that you're becoming. That process that is long and it's patient and it's hope-filled because you can look back and you can see how you have grown and developed 
and you're hopeful that that trajectory will continue in your life. So there could be some hope involved. And then you start to think if that's your perspective of yourself, what of a friend who looks at you? And if it was a friend who just gave you the brutally honest perspective of you right now today, you may not want to be around that friend a whole lot. If all they saw were your shortcomings and your failures and your flaws and your imperfections and they gave you that brutally honest assessment every moment of every day, you may not be able to handle that level of challenge. And yet, on the other hand, if if there was a friend who just pretended like none of your weaknesses exists, you may come to a point of wondering, do you actually care about me? So somewhere in there, there's that balance between support and challenge that's a good pace for relationships with others. So that's your perspective and your friend's perspective, but I'll tell you what, there's an even bigger perspective that matters way more than either of those two categories, and that's God's perspective of you. And really, before we can begin to look at one another, it's important that we consider, how does God see me? Because that will inform and shape the way that we see others, including our spouse. Well, what is God's perspective of you? Here in Romans 8, we're going to find out that God searches your heart, that he knows his own plan for you. So there's a future sense in which he looks at you. He's not just seeing you who you are today, but he knows the plan that he's had for you since before you were began, before your life began, and that plan that is still being carried out in your life. We see here in Romans 8 that he called you, that he's working all the circumstances of your life to achieve his good plan for your life. That even before you looked to Jesus, he knew you. And he's at work. So when he looks at you, it's not just as a passive observer. He's actually at work in your life. And what's he doing? We find out here in Romans 8, he is shaping you so that you look more like Jesus. So really, his view of you is quite hope-filled. It's not just who you are today or who, who you've become to this point. He's looking down the road and he's seeing the you that he is shaping and developing. And really, when it comes to relationships with fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, when it comes to that spiritual friendship, really what's required is that we have a God's perspective view of one another. That we learn to see each other the way that God sees that other person, whether it's a brother or sister in Christ or that most intimate relationship between a husband and wife. That's really God's plan for marriage. So here we'll get into Romans 8. We're going to look at uh, the, the central portion of this chapter beginning in verse 18. Let's read together now Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. There's a contrast that Paul is setting up. He's been developing it throughout this chapter. It's a contrast between this present time and that to be revealed time. Okay, just like the, the conversation we began with this morning. Who are you today? The, the brutal reality, the honest assessment of yourself. And who are you becoming? What's the future you look like? What are you aspiring to? How are you growing? How are you being developed? We're going to see here it's not just 
an action that you do, but it's really God at work developing you. Not just goals that you have for self-realization, self-actualization, but it's God with a good plan that he is bringing about in your life. So in this present time, earlier in chapter 8, we see it's related to this world It's of the flesh, it's mundane, it's terrestrial, it's physical, it's the present, it's this mortal, perishing reality that we all have. When you look at your body, you may be like me and you look in the mirror and you go, man, there's a few less hairs this week than there were last week. There's a couple more wrinkles, there's some gray. And you begin to realize, yep, this mortal form is fading. That's what Paul's talking about in the present time. And yet there's this other reality, this other part of you, the to-be-revealed part. That is the part that is being renewed by God's Spirit. There's new breath being breathed into you by the Creator. It's this renewed creation. It's a resurrection reality. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work within you. So there's a new you that is still being anticipated and it's not, it's substantial. It's not an empty false hope in a way of like, man, I, I sure hope something else develops or happens in my body. No, it's rooted in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. That's the to be revealed part. And here in verse 18, Paul calls that glory. So there's this glorious part of who you are that is yet to be revealed and God is at work developing in you, that, you in that direction. And the reality is you have suffering in the present time. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. If I did, I'm assuming every husband and wife would say there's been some suffering in your marriage. The reality is we all had character flaws that we brought into marriage. And the people that we knew pre-marriage were able to overlook some of those flaws. You know, our, our beloved guys, when we, when we pulled that ring out and said, will you? And she said, yes, I will. And then on the wedding day, we made it real, and you said, I do. And she said, I do as well. She didn't know what she was getting into at that moment. She thought your character flaws were minor, and now she knows them to be major. And those character flaws get accentuated in marriage as that intimacy develops, as the walls come down, as transparency happens, we begin to understand what Paul is talking about. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and we've seen that in our own marriages and in the friendships with those who are closest to us in the body of Christ. And yet don't lose sight of that hope that also comes with this in the second part of the verse, the glory that is to be revealed. That present suffering, those character flaws, nothing compared to that glory that is to be revealed. Now he ties it into creation. It's not just this highly individualized reading of this chapter, but this is bigger than us. In fact, it applies to all of God's creation. Remember back in Genesis 1 and 2? It didn't start on day one with, and God made me. That's, that's the world that most of us operate in each day, right? It's all about me. No, it, it started way bigger than us. It started with the good God who created out of nothing. And he separated light from the darkness. And he separated the waters. And he created dry land, vegetation, all the sea creatures, the birds, the animals, everything that has breath. And now we see here 
creation being renewed and remade according to God's good plan that has existed since the dawn of time. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the, revela- the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's this picture of creation, waiting, longing, and yet enslaved in the present reality, bondage, corruption. And the the metaphor of like labor pains. What happens at the end of labor pains in an ideal situation? You end up with a cute little baby, right? And, you know, if you're like my bride, that's a lot of labor pains, like 30 hours, right? And even if it's short, it's more like running a sprint than a marathon, and it's painful. And usually those are the ladies down the hall that are screaming while she's practicing her Lamaze breathing, right? But at the end of that whole process, you get to hold this little treasure And somehow that pain fades from your memory as you enjoy that gift. And this is what creation is doing. It's looking forward with hope to something really good that's coming. And in the meantime, there's pain, there's groaning, birth pains. But it's a hope kind of like, you know, when a woman is expecting. It's kind of a funny word that we use. Like, you know, your belly's out this far. Your hormones are all going crazy and you're expecting. I'm pretty sure it's going to happen, ma'am. And yet that's, that's how we call someone who is uh, going to have a baby. We say expecting. That's really a good picture of the biblical word for hope. A little different than we use the word hope in English, right? If you say, well, I hope this happens, it may have no basis in reality. But really hope in the Bible is like that expectation. It's a confidence It's an assurance that something is going to take place. We're just waiting for that day for it to arrive. That's hope in the biblical sense. And creation has that kind of hope. There's this expectation. There's an anticipation. There's a looking forward to. It's a real hope based in reality. And it, it, now, now there's some phrases that are in here that are going to be unpacked in the next verses. Looking for the glory of the children of God. Let's unpack that a little bit more because now Paul turns in verse 23. says, not only for creation, but now focusing on you and I as men and women, as young people. Not only the creation, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we ourselves are in this process of hope as well. What's the basis for our hope? Well, creation is anticipating. We saw some things here in, in the preceding verses, there, 
creation is waiting for the revealing of the children of God, waiting for the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then what are we anticipating? We're waiting for the fullness of God's spirit. You look back to the beginning of chapter eight. There's a lot of conversation there about being led by God's spirit, being adopted into God's family, being heirs of God, being fellow heirs with Jesus. The inheritance that Jesus gets is ours. And that's what we anticipate. I don't know if you see that when you look in the mirror, my brother, my sister in Christ, but I hope you do. I hope you get a glimpse of what God sees when he looks at you. And as he's looking at you, he's not just seeing your present flaws, your current reality, but he's looking down the road and he's seeing full adoption as a family member in his kingdom. Brothers and sisters of Christ, essentially, who are joint heirs with him, recipients of all the blessings of our Father, the inheritance that is ours, the the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, yeah, you're one of his heirs as a son and daughter of the king. And so there is this groaning and this longing within each of us as we look at our present reality. We wake up every day. Tomorrow is a Monday morning, I'm sorry to tell you. And you're going to find this present suffering piece. It's going to become very vivid and real. And maybe some of those character flaws will be very apparent as you look at yourself. But don't lose sight of that good work that God is doing in you by his spirit, breathing life into you, renewing you, restoring you, preparing you for that day when his glory is fully revealed and when we get to then be glorified together with Jesus, fully self-actualized, fulfilling God's plan, God's call on our lives. That redemption hope that, that is then described there in verses 24 and 25 here, we're saved from that sinful flesh and from that law of sin and death way of living, walking according to the flesh, having our minds set on the flesh, hostile toward God, and instead now we're saved for freedom in Christ, walking according to God's spirit, setting our minds on the things of God's spirit, not on the things of our flesh, and really experiencing life as he breathes into us in a new way. You know, I I don't think it's possible to really find fulfillment and satisfaction in marriage if we don't begin by first seeing ourselves through God's eyes. You know, if, if when I look in the mirror, all I'm seeing is corruption, guilt, condemnation, shortcomings, failures, flaws, weaknesses, and I'm not seeing the power of God at work within my life, his spirit transforming me, being conformed to the image of Christ, I'm going to project those same attitudes toward the people in my life that are closest to me, right? I'm going to look at my, life, my wife with that same critical eye that just sees the imperfections, the failures, the shortcomings, and yet God's calling us to live in a new way where we first realize who he has made us as sons and daughters of the king, where we first see ourselves through his eyes, who we're becoming as he conforms us to the image of Christ, as he does that work within us, and as we get a hold of that reality, we can then begin to extend that grace to one another and not only see the shortcomings, but see what he is doing, starting with that person that he gives to us as a gift and says, nurture her, respect him, submit to one another, 
put each other first. Be a picture of my love and my grace daily to one another. There's a patient hope that's required. What is the work that God is doing in our lives? Again, it's not just me making myself conform to the image of Christ. And I'm so thankful for that because I don't do a very good job of that. I get sucked back into the old me very easily, very quickly. But the good news is that God is at work transforming you and me. If you are a follower of Jesus, you now have the power of God's Spirit at work within you. Here's what it says in verse 26. Some of the works of the Spirit within our lives laid out right here in the next paragraph. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Just think about that. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is looking at you fully aware of every weakness you have. There's no hiding. Everything is open and exposed, naked and defenseless before him to whom we must give an account of ourselves. So there's no hiding. He sees through every intention, through every motivation, through every facade that we put up. He knows exactly who you are. Your weaknesses are very clear to God's spirit. And what does he do? Does he point an accusatory finger at those weaknesses and shortcomings? Does he condemn you? Not if you are under the blood of Christ Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, Jesus has taken the punishment for your sin upon himself. And when the Holy Spirit looks at you and sees those inevitable flaws and weaknesses you have, here we see in Romans 8.26, the Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness. Not only that, he prays for you. So get your mind around this. The Holy Spirit looks into your heart, knows exactly what is there, and then looks into the mind of God toward you and knows exactly what is there, and then prays that those two come into alignment, that your heart, through a process of being transformed and conformed to the image of Christ, your heart will be brought to that place that God envisions in his mind as he looks at you. That's the intercession of God's Spirit. Now I'll ask you, what is your job toward your husband or wife? To identify every fault and flaw? To be quick to point those out? Or to get on board with the work of God's Spirit who, when he sees your weakness, helps you in your weakness and then prays for you that your heart will come into alignment for what God has envisioned for your life? What if we would do that for our husband, for our wife? toward our spouse to say, you know, I see your weaknesses. I'm going to help you in those areas. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to serve you. I'm getting some glimpses of your heart and I know God's mind toward you. I'm going to intercede and pray that God will do his work to bring into alignment your heart with his plan. Get on board with what the Spirit does for each of us in our relationships with one another. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Now that's one of the uh, bumper sticker verses that people like to just cut out and stick on their bumper and then apply to any and every situation, right? So you're like, man, I want that new Mercedes-Benz. And I know that God works out all things for the good of those who love God. Okay, this is going to be good. It's the good. This new car, this sweet ride is the good. And since I love God, I'm called by him, he's going to work it out, right? It's a great verse. Every American loves this little snippet of the verse. But it's important we look at it in context, right? So the context of the passage, to look and see what is God's spirit speaking to the church by his word. Is it saying that the good is whatever we decide it is? We're not so good at determining what the good is, apparently. Eve looked at the tree, at the fruit, and said, it looks good. How, did, how far did that get humanity, right? So there's a lot of things that we think look good that are actually not good. But there is a good that's way beyond our ability to recognize or discern. And that's exactly what the Spirit is able to do. We saw in verse 27, the Spirit who knows the mind of the Spirit, who intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now we're, getting, we're honing in on what the good is. It's not our version of the good life. It's not whatever definition of the good your ethics professor gave you. It's not the secular, humanist, radically individualized idea of the good. Earlier in Romans, we had a brutally honest, real view of the human condition. Romans 1 verse 21 says, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Every part of who we are was tainted by sin's fall. And so our ability, our ability to see the good was clouded by our lust, our pride, our unfaith. All of those sins packaged together as that fruit was taken and eaten and, and that sin that we each participate in as well, actively. So it's not that definition of the good. Jeremiah the prophet puts it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The good is certainly not what my heart desires. That's a work that only God can do as he conforms me to the image of Christ. As I delight myself in him and he gives me the desires of my heart. They don't, the desires of my heart don't come automatically tilted toward God. Instead, they tilt towards sin, towards this world's pleasures. It says here in this verse that God works for the good, all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. He's looking at your life, you as individuals, you as families, you as husbands and wives. And he is orchestrating all of the circumstances, causing some things, allowing some things, using some things, all of those circumstances that are happening in your life. If you love him, if you're called according to his purposes, he's shaping them for the good. And the good 
is exactly what we saw in verse 27. It's the mind of the Spirit. It's the plans that He has for you. His thoughts, His intentions, His desires. And when we pray, it shouldn't be, you know, God, give me what I've earned. God, give me what I deserve. Trust me, you don't want either of those. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. Tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. But instead, let's pray according to this passage that we've read here together in Romans 8. God, give me according to your purposes. God, give me according to what you have in mind. Give me the good life as you define it. God, glorify yourself in me. And as we pray that for ourselves, to then turn and pray for our loved ones, our husband, our wife, our children, our brothers and sisters in Christ, those that he's brought into our lives that we would get on board with his heart's desire toward us. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. To summarize a lot of complex theological concepts that Paul has packed into these couple of verses, God knew you then, he knows you now, and he knows who he's shaping you to become. We see here that he chose you. What do you do with that? Give thanks. Be grateful. If you take that phrase that God chose you and you're able to now peer inside God's self and create some kind of complex theological framework on predestination, you're able to do more than I am. I don't think that's what we're called to in this verse. We're called to say, God, thank you for choosing me. And there's not a single person here by accident this morning. Maybe it's the first time you've stepped foot in a church ever or in a long time. That's an indicator that God has chosen you and he's calling you to himself. When he calls you, there's some other actions that follow that. He calls you and there's no, it's not a mistake, it's not luck, it wasn't fate. Because when God calls you, then he justifies you. Well, first he saves you. We saw that here as well. What does he save you from? Well, we've looked at that already. He saves you from this worldly living. Sin and its consequences. Being an enemy of God, being hostile toward God, being a recipient of the wrath of God. He saves you from all that. And he saves you for this new way of living where you become transformed and conformed to the image of Christ, where he is at work within you, the by his spirit way of living. And then we see this word, he justifies you. An easy word to understand what justify means. It's just as if I had never sinned. Okay, justify. So it's not just that your sin was forgiven, but it's like your sin was blotted out and removed, okay? Dan was uh, speaking to the youth, I think out of this same passage a couple months ago. I happened to be at youth group on a Thursday night. He had a great picture of this. He said, you know, if, you're, if, if you uh, commit a crime with your, with your vehicle, say you're drunk driving, 
you run over a pedestrian. If the judge forgives you, it means that you have no consequence for that sin now. You've been saved from the judgment that you deserved. But there's still the result of this sin out there. A family member who is now absent from this family and that guilt and that condemnation that you feel for the rest of your life. Justification deals with the second part of it. Where you're no longer under guilt, it's as if you had not sinned. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus is. That he removes our sin and casts it to the depth of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. And he does that work. And then there's this last part that is at work right now, this glorified part that we get to be called a son or a daughter of God, that we get to be heirs together with Christ, that we get to really live out God's design and blueprint for our lives, reflecting his glory and his goodness to his good creation. Spiritual friendship means that we look at another person and we see them through God's eyes. That's God's desire for your marriage. If you're to do that, we've seen in Romans 8, what's required is patient hope. I think the patience part is because of the present reality. Just as when you look in the mirror, you may not see conform to the image of Christ in every aspect of your daily life. And when you look at your spouse, same, same picture applies. That's why we need patience. But the hope is this confident expectation that it's not your husband or wife cleaning up their act, becoming like Jesus on their own strength and power. It's hope because it's based in the reality that God is at work, that God's spirit is shaping your spouse. Ladies, when you look at, at your husband who is not yet fully formed into the image of Christ, having that patient hope that says, I see a glimpse of who God has created him to be, and I'm going to get on board with that. I'm going to partner with the Spirit in helping him in his weakness, in praying for him and interceding that the picture that God has of my husband will shape his heart to get to that place of being conformed to the image of Christ. Guys, as we look to our wives, there's a verse, I think it's two slides in, that we read last week out of Ephesians 5. Verse 26 and 27. Here's what Jesus does for the church. And guys, this is instructions that is given to us as husbands. Jesus does this for the church, desires to sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And then Paul takes that picture of Jesus with the church and says, guys, this is your job with your spouse. There is a present reality. There's a future hope. Pray, intercede, help, serve so that your wife can be an instrument of worship to God. And the same applies to the wives. Get on board with what God is doing. And I ask you today, is your perspective in your marriage, is it one of patient hope 
Or is it today, are you in a season of impatient despair? Where you go, man, I have been waiting a long time. He still has not changed. I give up. It's pretty easy to get there. And the decision for us today is will we focus on those flaws of our spouse or will we focus on God's eternal glory and his work in that person that he's entrusted to us? We're going to close with this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 just to bring hope to each one of us because the reality is we each have character flaws. Marriage accentuates those flaws, brings them to the surface, and we're making that decision every day. Am I going to see the warts, the flaws, the imperfections? Am I going to highlight those, underscore them? Or am I going to see what God is doing and pray that he'll continue his good work? So 2 Corinthians 4 Verse 16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are temporary or transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you have an eternal perspective of your husband or wife? Do you see who God is shaping them to be? Does that give you hope? So I'm going to give you three takeaways today as we go. We'll pray that God will enable us to obey His Word, not to just be hearers of the Word today, but to be doers. All right? So the first one is what we saw the work of the Holy Spirit here, to help in weakness. You more than anyone else know the weaknesses of your spouse. Maybe you've been in the place of calling those out, highlighting them, helping your spouse to be more aware of their weaknesses. I'm sure they're very thankful for that. But I'm going to challenge you this week to try something new and instead of pointing out the flaws and the weaknesses to do what the Holy Spirit does, help. It's likely that God has brought the two of you together because you have different strengths and weaknesses. There may be some ways that you can serve and put your spouse first in a way that would be such a tremendous blessing because you have strengths where her weaknesses lie or where his do. And rather than resenting your spouse because of the weaknesses, Why don't you come in as a helper and say, God, give me the strength to bless and serve. And you may that may be scary because you might be right up to the edge of your own capacity and strength. And you might be saying, Hey, I have real needs. My needs are not getting met. And now you're saying I have to go even beyond and meet the needs that my spouse has because of weaknesses. Well, there's something beautiful that can emerge when both parties commit to helping each other in weakness. Instead of being postured toward one another in this defensive kind of dukes up, you know, you better meet my needs. You turn the tables on that and you say, what are your needs and how can I meet them? And if you've got two people doing that, that is mature Christianity. That's saying, I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to put you first. I'm going to die to self. And somehow God injects even more energy 
into a marriage, into a relationship like that. And he is the one that then gives us a capacity to serve in a way we're, we're drawing strength from him and carrying out his kingdom mission. So help your spouse in weakness. Maybe God's bringing something to your mind right now. And you could say, you know what, I actually could serve and bless and help in a way that's not uh, condemning, not manipulative, not coercive, not because I'm trying to get something back, but just to bless and to give. Number two, I challenge you to pray for your spouse this week as we saw the Holy Spirit knows our hearts, knows his mind for us, knows God's plans, and then he intercedes. We're called to do that for our husband, for our wife, to pray and say, God, bring about your good purposes in him, in her. Reveal your glory in my spouse. Conform my spouse to your image. And know that you know, it's not up to Heidi to transform me. That's God's work. But she can certainly pray for me. And I can do the same for her. So let's do that this week. Let's be praying for one another. And you know, this is not just an individualized, private thing. We can actually hold hands and pray out loud together as husbands and wives. And there's power in that. So pray for them when they're with you and when they're not. And finally, I'm going to challenge you this week to affirm those signs of eternal glory that you see in your husband or your wife or in others that God has brought into your life. God may be bringing someone else to mind here in this room that you can jot a note of encouragement to this week and say, you know, I saw you do this. It looked like Jesus. Here's a characteristic that I see frequently in your life. It reminds me of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because he demonstrates that same heart, that same spirit. In fact, one of the five love languages in the book about love languages is words of affirmation. If you want to show love, Don't just assume that people know what you appreciate and what you admire in them, how you see Jesus developing in them, his heart, his character. Actually speak it out and give that affirmation this week. Don't withhold it. Can you do that? Why don't we stand together as we call upon God for his power in our lives, for his transforming work of his spirit as he breathes new life into us. Let's go to him in prayer today. God, we thank you that you are at work. We thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you saved us, that you chose us, that you called us, that you've cleansed us, justified us, that you are in the process of sanctifying us, glorifying us, that we're called sons and daughters of the king. Thank you for the inheritance that is ours because of your work on the cross, Lord Jesus. Thank you for that eternal glory that you're working. And Lord, today if there's anyone here in this room that's believing the lie that they're under condemnation, they're under judgment, their sins can't be forgiven. Lord, today I pray they would have a fresh encounter of your grace, a fresh reminder that our debts were paid on the cross, that we're no longer slaves to sin. And may we call that out in one another as the enemy likes to come with temptation first and then with condemnation second. May we be a church of affirmation. 
that we would point to the good work that you are doing within us, that we would submit ourselves to your Spirit's work, that we would get on board with what you are doing, helping in weakness, interceding for one another, seeing you transform lives. I pray for marriages here today that are in need of that patient hope, recognizing and fully aware of the present character flaws and shortcomings, and yet hopefully expecting your continued work of transformation. We pray for miracles, God, for marriages that are in that place of impatient despair right now. That there'd be a new season, a new chapter, new life and joy brought because of you, because of your work. We thank you, Lord Jesus, now we submit to you. We ask that you'd help us to be doers of your word this week. In Jesus' name, amen.